This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. On today's episode, Ryan and I had the pleasure of sitting down in person with Caitlin Long. Caitlin is a 22-year Wall Street veteran, jumped into the Bitcoin and crypto space by founding Custodia Bank. Custodia is breaking ground on the bridge between the traditional banking system and the Bitcoin and digital assets that exist. We talked a lot about the issues with our current banking system, Bitcoin adoption alongside this banking system, as well as Wyoming and what it's like to live in Wyoming and the importance of decentralization. This was a really great and rewarding conversation to have with Caitlin. I'm excited for you to listen in. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We are live in Cheyenne. Welcome, Caitlin. How's it going? Welcome. Welcome to my backyard. Yeah. So another live conversation in Wyoming. We're on a little road trip here. And you grew up in Wyoming. I did. Left and then came back, correct? Love it. Yep, indeed. Okay, so maybe for a little introduction, let's go through your backstory. So it's like Wall Street, and you moved east, and then what brought you back to Wyoming? And did you miss it while you were gone? Oh yeah, oh, the whole lot. <laughs> Born and raised uh, in Laramie, and uh, dad was a college professor. Mom was a rural school teacher who drove forty miles each way to teach at a tiny rural school, uh, often behind snow plows on closed highways. It's a natural wind tunnel, as you probably know. And so Wyoming's a windy place. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I come from hardy stock, as they say. Uh, but then, yeah, left, uh, left after college to go out into the big world and uh, pretty quickly started wearing cowboy boots and, went, and realized, my gosh, the place I left was really special. And I knew I'd come back and um, got the opportunity to come back in 2019, right before COVID, um, it was very lucky that we moved here right before COVID uh, because this was a good place to ride out COVID. Were you in New York City then? or where I was in New York. So I started out with uh, four years of school um, in Boston, in Boston area, and then went off to New York and was there for a total of 25 years, more than that, actually. Yeah. So I was in New York. I was on the East Coast for almost, a, oh, sorry, almost 30 years total and then came back. Yeah. Quite the contrast, right? Yeah. I mean, what was that like exciting at first and then maybe overwhelming towards the end or, or what did you think of that? Well, well, I always kept one foot in Wyoming. My parents were obviously here for a while. They've both since passed away, but very active as an alum of the University of Wyoming. I spent more than 20 years on boards at the University of Wyoming, the foundation board, which is a formal fiduciary role, and then the uh, board of visitors of the Arts and Sciences College, which is the college from which I held the degree undergrad. Uh, and then just lots of friends, um, families mostly in Denver. So uh, yeah, came back a lot and um, always kept close ties here. Always knew I'd come back. I just didn't think I'd come back as, as soon as I did. I figured it would be retirement, but uh, um, you know, life, life throws you curveballs sometimes. And it just made sense to come here. And in, in after the Wyoming Blockchain Coalition stuff started going, one of the things I wanted to do, I was, I was retired. I wasn't really thinking that I was going to start mm-hmm. a business, 
Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do after, we, well, we'll probably talk about the Wyoming Blockchain Coalition, but it started in 2017, moved back home in 2019. I call this home, even though I moved to Cheyenne. Um, but it's, you know, it's very close to Laramie. I needed to be closer to the airport, um, which is the reason that we chose Cheyenne. We thought either either Cheyenne or Jackson. Jackson's awesome. Love Jackson. Love the vibe. Love the fact that it's a nice connection back to the city folk. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes when I'm in Jackson, I see more people that I know from New York than <laughs> people I knew from from uh, from from Wyoming. But it's not really Wyoming. Um, and I think you you guys know from from spending time in small town Wyoming. Small town Wyoming is very special. And it's different than Jackson Hole. That's got its great restaurants. It's got its culture. Really interesting people from all over the world. And I appreciate that. But I also really appreciate small town Wyoming because that's where I came from. And especially my mom, having taught at a rural school of town of 300 people. Um, And she had a huge impact on the students there. So much so that they actually erected a monument to her when she passed away. She passed away relatively young. And uh, there is a an art uh, installation in her memory in tiny Rock River, Wyoming. She had that much of an impact on that town. And she had those students earning, you know, winning national science contests, national, es- you know, essay contests from tiny, tiny Rock River. And, and she so appreciated the opportunity to be a rural school teacher because she grew up in a teeny tiny town in South Dakota that has since unincorporated because so few people are there. And so she really came from that background. And um, in part because of that, I had such an appreciation for the New York cities of the world and the teeny tiny rock rivers of the world. Yeah. So just maybe diving into that a little, like how, I mean, that's kind of like decentralized education right there at the small scale. Like how did that kind of shape like the way you think about education? Like, what do you think about that now? Like, compared to, you know, these giant public schools in New York City, New Jersey area, any kind of really populated area. Do you yeah, think that's well, a problem? I'm actually a proud product of, of Catholic schools, undergrad, or, you know, we're undergrad, I say, um, basically from first grade through sixth grade, and then public school. Um, and a lo- it blows a lot of people's minds that I was taught how to shoot a rifle in a public school. We could come back and talk about that later. But this is a hunting culture too, right? And a lot of people, as you know, from spending time in Wyoming, um, this is how people feed their family. And I do resent the outsiders who look down upon that because everybody has a right to feed their family. And there's an incredible wealth. Well, I'm sure we'll talk, talk about the incredible wealth of the wildlife in Wyoming and the herd management and the conservation that comes from hunting to keep those herds from doing what happened this year. We had an incredible winter kill because there was a, a harsh winter, but the herds were too big. And in some places, there, were, there was 90% die-off. Um, and I, I just lament because I think, you know, I know having worked, um, well, we can talk about this later. I'm not answering your question, but to come back, um, the Governor Gordon's wife, Jenny, is very active in the Wyoming soup kitchen. And uh, I was lucky enough to participate in the Wyoming women's antelope hunt. Um, It was my first hunt of big game. And, um, And it was fun to be part of that where some folks were there to learn the skill, to be able to feed their families. My hunting partner 
was a mom who was filling her freezer with good grass-fed meat to feed her family. And, and uh, there were many others who were there to donate their harvest to the soup kitchen. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And, and that's a huge part of this culture. So, uh, but, uh, you know, as much as some folks from the city look down upon all that, one of the other fun things about it is when I take them shooting and, um, and they understand now what it is. And I see some of, some of my, you know, most liberal friends to, to take them shooting and under, and, and, and watch them see it or watch them experience it, um, and understand that, that it's a great equalizer. And, but boy, you know, it blows their mind that I was taught in a public school how to shoot a rifle in eighth grade. Post Columbine, of course, that's no longer the case, not even in Wyoming, but it's still a hunting culture here. There was like archery or something. I don't know. I thought it was actually not real rifles, but mock rifles, maybe in Thermopolis that they were doing. And it made like regional news like that. Because they're starting to bring it back. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like, my sister sent me that because she was still there and yeah, it was like in, in tri-state area, news, yeah. which is really funny. Well, it's interesting because when I was in high school, I remember, well, first of all, in junior high, some of the students brought their own rifles to the class, okay? Like that blows most city folks' minds. Um, but even in high school, it was not uncommon for the rifle to be visible in the back window of a pickup truck. And you'd, you'd be in the student part of the parking lot of the high school and there were rifles in the pickup trucks. Because this is just part of the hunting culture. So nowadays, that's not so visible. But it's, it was interesting coming back because having been in a city where, where it's, you know, really only the criminals are carrying the guns and the police officers, um, to come back to Wyoming and you start, I started to really notice it and appreciate it a lot more than I ever had before. You'd see somebody getting up from a chair in a restaurant and see that little bulge. And, you know, I didn't understand what was there before, but I appreciate the fact as somebody who's had some interesting, you know, I'm a relatively um, public person and have had some interesting situations. um, As you can imagine, um, I appreciate the fact that at all times there is someone around me, if not myself, who's armed. No, I mean, I, I I resonated with a lot of what you just said, only because I come, I kind of grew up in a really small town. I'm from from Wisconsin, but I grew up in Midland, Kansas, in a town called McPherson, which is like smack dab in the middle of awesome. in the middle of Kansas. It's yeah. actually it's actually a similar physical size to Thermopolis, but more of okay. a more of a lander like population size now. But when I was there, it was it was pretty small. They had like one main plant that pretty much everyone in the town worked at, and uh, I like a lot of the same stories that you just said. Like I. Like I saw all that stuff. Like pretty much everyone had guns. Like everyone was shooting. Um, I still talk to friends that are from there and like live around the area still and like talk about that stuff all the time. And I think what I was just going to say is that there's, you have this really good perspective now having lived in New York state in, in the city yeah. and coming back. So you have sort of this dual perspective that a lot of people that just grew up, say in cities like Toronto or New York or LA don't have, I lived in LA for a while. So I have sort of that same perspective of, different types of mindset and right. it's, it's interesting sort of the the closed-mindedness that exists and it's sort of unfortunate because i feel like there's so much context dependent stuff like right it's totally different environment here than in los angeles and so i, I hate when people like blake and like do blanket statements against these sort of like ways of upbringing like one way is wrong and one way is not um so i'm sure you have that same sort of opinion on that 
Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's why, you know, we talk about orange pilling in the Bitcoin world, you know, when, when, when some of my most liberal friends, um, I was a member in, in Connecticut of a shooting club and um, some, of my, some of my most liberal friends, I'd come and teach them, you know, give them the experience. And it always, everybody had a great time. And they understood how empowering it was, especially for women. It is a great equalizer for, 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 for people who are of less physical strength, whether it's height, whether it's um, gender, whether it's just age or muscle tone or whatever, there is a great equalizer that, that comes with that. So it is what it is. Um, it's, you know, it's not a big deal to me because it just is. And um, it's interesting because, of course, when I was in New York City, living in New York City, in order to get a permit in New York, you actually had to prove that that someone was after you and basically it was impossible. But once I moved to Connecticut, it was interesting. After my my father passed away, there wasn't anybody else in the family who was willing to take the family firearms. And I have one of my most cherished possessions is my grandfather's shotgun that his father gave him when he turned 14. Okay, this came from the Montgomery Ward catalog. They were not wealthy people, but um, this is, it has some really beautiful tooling on it and it is a family heirloom. And I am keeping that and I have actually had it refurbished because I want to pass that on. This was a big thing back then. Now he grew up on a farm in Iowa, in Iowa. So again, you know, I come from small town, you know, rural, rural people. Um, both of my parents grew up on farms and, um, one of the farms in the family, uh, is still in the family. It's, it's been consecutively farmed by a long in Johnson outside. I think it's Johnson County, Iowa. It's right outside Iowa city for 132 years. Um, and I only recently really learned about the family history um, and and how we can trace, you know, the, when the relatives came in, into the United States and what was their circumstance. I come, by the way, from, it was my great, great, great grandfather fought for Napoleon. He was sent at age 14 from Germany, from Bavaria, to, sh- to fight for Napoleon in Russia. And in that war... There was 90% casualties. The Germans were the ones that were put out front because the French were, they, you know, trained, um, right? So the Germans were expendable. How my great, great, great grandfather survived that and and there was cannibalism and it just brutal, brutal um, experience. And, but for that fluke of history, I wouldn't be here. Um, So it's just interesting to understand your family history. And uh, it was his son who came over to um, to uh, to the U.S. Uh, and my I, I was I was able to I tr- went back to the family to, again some really really small towns right went back to the family uh, cemetery very recently and found his grave and I never would have understood the context as a little kid looking at all these it was that's the Rarit side um, um, my paternal grandmother Rarit R O H R E T um, German name and uh, and I found his his grave and he was in, an incredibly well liked well appreciated um, person who lived until he was in his 90s and uh, was a pillar of the community and uh, you know immigrated as a little kid from Germany and apparently they came in through Baltimore and 
hopped a train. Um, and the, the, there's a family, there, there's a story that they actually rode on top of the train and there, because back then, of course they were steam engines. Um, and there was a spark that actually, um, caught one of the, one of their clothing on fire that came out of the steam engine. So, um, you know, just the, the scrappiness of the relatives, uh, I have incredible appreciation for, but, you know, Hey, all of us have those stories. I'm not saying that my stories are any different. It's just, it's a really interesting mix of city experiences and, um, rural experiences. And I appreciate both sides and I appreciate people who are open-minded to both sides. Yeah. I think that's, it's cool when you have that diverse experience. Mine's kind of the opposite growing up in suburbs of Philadelphia and New Jersey, but then moving out here and just falling in love with like outdoors and nature and you have yeah. embraced it. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. That's how we met is online through Twitter and through some of your experiences yeah. that you talk about in Wyoming. I think you love Wyoming as much as I do. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of places like talk about Europe, you know, where we all like all our families came from. There's not wild like areas that are just untouched yeah. anymore. It's really I think it's really special. And we talk about hunting and things like that. I, I got into hunting last year for the first time Great. ever pretty intimidating to just do it like yeah. it's but wow what an experience to just be in the wilderness like well so so many people who look at hunting as um and, and think oh my gosh how can you take an animal's mm -hmm. life what's so interesting um one of our neighbors is part of the game and fish department and and understanding how that is part of herd conservation and we were just talking earlier about the die-off, 90% die-off in some of the deer and antelope herds in this, in this state because the winter was so severe. Normally, the wind blows enough that they can get to the grasses and keep themselves alive during the winters. But because there was literally a snowstorm every Wednesday for about five weeks um, and it dumped, you know, two feet at a time, uh, there, you know, there was some pretty heavy snowpack. It made a great experience for you as a skier. But um, not a great experience, of course, for the for the antelope. But what you don't understand is how much that the because those those animals don't have natural predators, um, and the humans are their predators. And so it is just a normal and accepted part of the experience. And in my first hunting experience, which was the year before last, um, for big game, uh, uh, um, one of the local ranchers that I was I was hunting on their on his ranch. Um, with his wife and she had worked for the game and fish department in, I believe it was Oregon. It was in the Pacific Northwest. And I asked her, how do you, how do you figure out how many tags to give out? How do you, how do you try to estimate what is the right herd size? Because she's right. Since the humans have moved out so many of the natural predators, the herds would overproduce and then they would start dying off. And so there is a, there is a science to it. And some people would say, well, it's the arrogance of humans that we think we can estimate what's the right herd size. And sure enough, you know, if you want to look at what happened last year, boy, they should have given out a lot more hunting tags last, last fall, right? Because that winter kill was so staggering in certain parts of the state. And it is sad. I mean, we drove up to Jackson, that area south of Jackson by Pinedale it was just staggering. It's so sad to see all those beautiful animals right up close to the highway that couldn't dig down to get to the grasses and starve to death. And there were just thousands of carcasses right along the road. And it's just, boy, nature can be brutal. 
But what the game and fish departments are trying to do is is basically estimate what's going to keep the the herd going at a at a high strength. So I've got to tell you also, last year I drew an elk tag, and I was ready to do it, and I was waiting. Actually, I had applied for a for a can. Um, and I'm still waiting for the, for the can that's taken forever because one of the ranchers will not let anyone on, on hunt on his property unless you have a silencer because it scatters the herd and it'll scatter the herd 20 miles. He said the elk will literally just run 20 miles. Um, and so, and I'm, I, I, it makes an enormous difference. I've seen now and experienced the difference um, for hunting purposes of having, of having a silencer. It really does, does spook the animals less. And of course, one of the things, think about yourselves as a human, when you have a fear reaction, the, what, ha, what do you have pulsing through your veins, right? The adrenaline, it, it has an impact on the meat, right? So I learned this from one of my regenerative farming friends in New Hampshire, um, who the most important thing when he got one of his chickens was not to scare them because the meat didn't taste as good. You don't want the adrenaline pulsing through, right? So it, it actually is more humane um, to do it that way. And um, so anyway, so, um, but I did not get a chance to get the elk and I'm so, uh, you know, I'm beside myself because now the elk tags are not as, as limited as the antelope and deer no, tags. No, they did pretty well. This the elk did pretty well, in yeah. part because of the National Elk Refuge mm-hmm. up by Jackson, there's a pretty decent um, population of elk. But uh, boy, it's um, I, I do lament that I didn't get a chance. My elk tag expired. And I so many weekends, I, I could, because I have a friend who's a rancher, he said, just come on out here. Out here. There's a great herd. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll help you through it. And, and the, the thing about the Wyoming women's antelope hunt that was such a great experience is you were with experienced hunters. Mm-hmm. And so they did the field dressing. Uh, but I said, at this point, that's the next thing for me. I want to really learn how to do the field dressing. And then the next thing after that will be learning how to actually um, butcher the meat myself. I would like to do that someday. So I kind of did all that like in one go. Did <laughs> you really? Oh, you went season. all in. So, wow. well, I didn't have any rancher friends. So I, I drew a tag, an elk tag, um, north of Pinedale and Cor- north of Cora, right? like on the Green River, west of the Green River. Beautiful. And I kind of did the math. I was like, where's the best odds I can get first time? That's a beautiful area because worst case. It'll just be fun to look for some elk. Correct. No expectations. Had a buddy fly out from New York I went to college with who only had hunted whitetail in his backyard, basically. So no experience either hunting elk on public land uh, in the Rocky Mountains. And we just went out there, no expectations. And, you know, we saw a bunch of elk on the first few days and then tapered off. But then the last day, yeah, got very fortunate and, and harvested a bull after a 400-yard shot. And luckily it was... 400 yards, yeah. wow. It was, it was the most insane thing. But we hiked 40, 50 miles over five days, you know, public land, 8,000 feet of elevation, and then two and a half, three mile pack out in the pitch black. So oh my like, gosh. talk about proof you of had work. To pack out. Oh yeah. And it's just two of us and we have to go back in the, in the next in the dark. Morning, in the dark, down wow. like a little, you know, mountainside. And, and did a scavenger um well we we field dress it and that's where my friend was helpful. So he kinda yeah. like, you know, because having done before. deer before. Yeah. That was nice. But yeah. you know, it's pretty intuitive, I would say, once you if you have some 
I guess, guidance um, there. And then we quartered it up and, and moved all the meat to mm -hmm. like two, 300 yards away from the carcass. And then we're right, back the next that. morning. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's grizzly country and yep. wolf. There's some wolves out there, but sure. spooky. And uh, yeah, yeah so that was what an insane experience. First time ever Good hunting. You. Um, Good for you. Yeah. And then a week or two later, I was just hunting antelope near Thermopolis and yeah, decided to just learn and butcher, field, field dress, butcher, process the whole thing myself because wow. antelope's smaller and, right. you know. There's um, actually not much meat on an animal. No, it's like 30, yeah. 40 pounds, mate, 35. I don't even max, think it's that much. Or, at least the one, the one that was, I got, but, but the, I must say the, the, the one that I got was more for like the experience and yeah, I, I was yeah, able yeah. to get in 108 yards. Nice. So very close without, without yeah, spooking yeah. them, which was great. But so then it was so important to me as a first timer to have an ethical kill um, because my just ethics tells me 100%. I will, if I'm going to take a, a life of an animal, I am going to use every bit of it. I don't hunt for sport. I hunt yes. for eating. And um, I wanted, I just was praying for an ethical kill. And it's that hunters, what do they call it? Um, with, where you can't pull the trigger. Um, there's a, there's something. Yeah. Where, yeah. It's basically choking, but it's, a, it's, but it's very real when, because especially when you're first time trying to, you know, trying to do this it, it's a very real experience that, yeah. that, that that you end up basically choking and, and you just you can't do it um and so um but but having done it the first time and and being with a hunter and and his wife who had nice. um game ex, game game and fish experience and it's funny because he nicked the stomach as he was field dressing and a, a whole bunch of uh, not part of wyoming no, no actually no no that's why i was going to share this in that part of Wyoming where we were hunting, it happened to be relatively low altitude and he had alfalfa fields. And so it was bright green. And he said, oh, this is going to be good eating because that was an antelope that was not eating sagebrush. So it won't be very gamey. It was an antelope that was eating alfalfa. And That's indeed, nice. it was good eating. Yeah. yeah my, well, mine was the opposite. First, the elk, I shot 400 yards right in the liver down, best tasting meat. I actually have a pound. You could have some if you want. But um, the antelope, I was 70 yards away and wow, did not get it. In the first, yeah, I was like crawling up, but it was weird. Like the way it was, the land was oriented. And then I was like looking at one and then I was afraid I spooked them. So oh, no. I actually did not get that one in one shots. And yeah, they're only eating sage out there. So yeah. very gamey, but you know, that's just how it goes. Well, sometimes. my hunting partner who I mentioned was, was hunting to fill her freezer, it, it, especially when you are, when you have one tag, right? And your goal is to feed your family. She wasn't interested in taking a pretty looking one. Yeah. She was interested in taking a big one. And so she, we passed up several during the day because you only have one opportunity. And when you're, when you're trying to fill your freezer, um, you're looking for a pretty mature big one. And um, thankfully, she found one. But um, that was a hard experience for me. It was a good experience for me to be there because it she didn't she didn't get it on the first shot she wounded it um and that is one of the hardest things for especially first-time hunters to see and experience um and what the what the rancher was again so grateful to have had that great experience with him what he explained is that the death of these animals in the wild is so much worse oh, than yeah. what than what was happening with us Absolutely. And, and, um, and so that, that, that helped me understand, especially when, um, you know, 
that that animal was suffering because she was quite a bit further away looking for a much bigger one that would have been, you know, the one I got was relatively young and, you know, didn't quite know what he was doing yet, even though he had a harem of lots of women around him. He was a, he was the equivalent of a, probably a 15 year old boy, right? You know, didn't quite know what he was doing yet, but he had his, he had his girls, right? Whereas the one she got knew exactly what he was doing, which is why we weren't able to get as close. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was tough for me to watch because, you know, it is hard to see it suffering, but, um, but it was, it happened, it all happened fast and ethically. And just like me, she wanted every little piece of meat to, you know, put in her freezer and feed her family. So it was such an, what, as you can tell, a wonderful experience. And, um, the taxidermy, uh, they, they had set up an amazing taxidermist and boy, that animal is so regal. And I, and I, say thank you to him every time. The first thing I did after I harvested was walk up, put my hands on and say a prayer and say thank you. I mean, that I, I couldn't have put it any better. I, so I come from like a pretty long family um, history of hunters. I've actually never hunted myself. I've gone on hunting trips with like my uncle and my grandfather many times in, in Northern Michigan. My grandpa owned some land and we would go almost every season. Uh, to, I think it was whitetail or mule and stuff like that. Or yeah, whitetail. Yeah, whitetail deer. Um, so we'd go to that. And it's he would always explain to me that you shouldn't... He was really big on the whole, like, we're going to use the entire animal. Like, Correct. He, used the, he literally used the hides. He used like the bones for some stuff. Um, and so I had that, like, that value really instilled in me. Right. And so I find that really valuable. I mean, I'm sure you learned incredible things about yourself on, on that Absolutely. trip. I mean, I remember yeah. Tristan telling me about about his experience. I was like, oh man, I got to get, got to get into some of this stuff because yeah. it sounds like a wild ride. But I mean, th- there's sort of like that, like that disconnect. I think that a lot of people have, we talk about this a lot on the podcast about just the disconnect of like the food we eat, where it comes from and oh, the my. conditions being completely different in a conventional sense than in a regenerative sense or in a sense of, of hunting for your food. And so I feel like just having that, that full knowledge of that connection of like you were there every step of the way Correct. with that animal to yep. your dinner table. You bet. It's, it adds uh, a depth to it that I think is immeasurable. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's super valuable. I feel like, I feel like it, it needs to be something that more people need to understand, even if it's just getting to know your local farmer yes. on a regenerative scale, because it's, it's just something that's, I, I can't express how valuable of, of knowledge that is for someone to have. Because it just doesn't exist in mainstream consensus. Like if you live in a city, like people just go to Whole Foods or something like that, and they just well, they don't know where their food came exactly. from, and right. I mean, you know, I I, I know what you guys are interested in, and it, with with eating local and you know non GMO, grass fed, um, regenerative, everything as natural as possible, and that's awesome. And one of the cool things about Wyoming is it's food freedom law. Um, which Representative Tyler Lindholm, who's one of the people who created the Bitcoin laws in Wyoming, not coincidentally, right? He's interested in food freedom and he's interested in Bitcoin. Um, and uh, so because of the food freedom law, uh, the, the, the meat does not have to be processed at a USDA processor. So we buy all of our beef from a local rancher who harvests locally and they package it and, you know, call up and they'll deliver it. And it's, it's amazing. And they, they don't even bother to pay for the organic 
you know, because why bother, right? I mean, locally, it's just, it's, these cows have never had a roof over their head. They've just been grazing on natural Wyoming grass. I have not done the bison. There is a, there is a local farmer who does bison as well. Um, And then when we were up um, for the Wyoming women's antelope hunt, they actually at the, at the um, meat processing facility had pork as well. So there was a local um, harvester and, and the family farm in Iowa that's still in the family. My, it's my dad's first cousin. It, it, he was a hog man um, and it was pork. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's the principles align like mm-hmm. completely. I mean, it's, you know, don't trust, verify it's everything. And that's like so powerful. And yeah, we'll have to get you some, some good. Bison. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, um, I think it was Jameson Lopp, who's a Bitcoiner who became a oh, carnivore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, uh, or at least um, um, hardcore no carb. I don't know if he's 100% carnivore, but but he start he he started tweeting about the jerky that he was making. Mm. Um, and so uh, I bought one of the you know air fryers that dehydrates, and so I'll get some of the cuts of meat from this rancher and just make my own jerky um, with that. And yeah, some of those odd cuts like cube steak or some are of great those, for jerky. Yeah, they're great. Really and, great for jerky. Yeah. yeah. But you know, what's really funny is coming back to why didn't I use the elk tag that I'm regretting not using? It's because I have, I was so busy Freezer's in full. the fall. No, no. I was so busy because of all the fed stuff trying to get the, the fed approval and literally it worked seven days a week probably around 18 hours a day. It was that intense. And so I never got the opportunity to, to actually use that elk tag. And I, and it's, I lamented when I threw it away because it expired and would have loved to have had that good, you know, grass fed, non GMO elk meat. Pure Wyoming protein. Yeah. And, and also another little, another story, a doctor who moved into town, moved from New Jersey. So you've got the New Jersey connection. He moved here because he and his wife, He's ex-military, um, decided that they wanted to serve their kids nothing other than self-harvested meat. And so that's why they're in Wyoming. That's amazing. Yeah. So there'll be more opportunity for elk tags, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Well, hopefully, I don't know about this year, but we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, the winter kill problem is is, is I just got the same tragic. one. That was the only tag I got. And oh, fantastic. Deer, I did not. It was all like yeah. unsuccessful, 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 unsuccessful. Oh, good for you. Well, but, and I was too when I there's grew leftover it. tags and over the counter that you can get. Yes. So. Well, and they're limiting the out of state tags. So yes, you've got to be a Wyoming resident. That's also why I love Wyoming. Um, well, because this is a natural bounty that is here. And so, yeah, they take the take the view, rightfully so, that it's the locals that should get a crack at it. But it was so interesting because um, uh, I ended up buying, uh, someone, let, someone let me borrow their rifle for the Wyoming mm-hmm. women, women's um, um, antelope hunt because I had a 30 out 6 And they said, there's no way that you should use that for that because it's too big. Um, you can, but you're, you're better off with a 6.5 Creedmoor. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so what did I do? I invested in a 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, but I didn't have any ammunition. And in the ammo shortage, I went around everywhere looking for 6.5 Creedmoor. And I've got to say, I had such respect for the others who were doing the same because we were all waiting for 6.5 Creedmoor. And again, these are, these are people from all walks of life looking to feed their families, waiting for 6.5 Creedmoor. And none of us overbought because we all knew that if there wasn't ammo for others, 
to be able to go out and use their tags during hunting season that they might not have fed their families. And so all of us, one box. When, we, when, when it finally came in, one box. And I think there was a limit of three. But I, at that time, when we bought the 6.5 Creedmoor, one box, all of us. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Wow. Yeah. I stuck with the 30 out six because I'm always easy. Well, you were, you were hunting with bigger. Yeah, yeah. Did you hunt an antelope uh, yeah, with 30 out six? Yeah, I did. That's wow. all. I only had one rifle, but. Well, the 6.5 Creedmoor is awesome for yeah. antelope. No, that's yeah. a nice caliber. Yep. I mean, yep. But all right, this is kind of turning into a hunting podcast, <laughs> which I'm not mad about. And we're going to, we're like, we're going to have to talk to more hunting folks. Like you said, Ryan Leachman. Definitely yes. Brian. I've never met him, yeah, but we're what, have to a, get him on here. what a great family we, to move we, to Wyoming. Yeah, and He's teaching it, his daughter to hunt I, already. I think that's yeah. a very decentralized thing. So it's exciting. But, you know, getting to why you couldn't hunt. So was it, you know, and, <laughs> and your Bitcoin origin story. Yeah. So. Were you already into Bitcoin and then Wyoming, you saw yeah. this stuff happening or, or how did this all come to fruition in, in 2019? So here's the history. Um, why, uh, I, I came across Bitcoin in 2012, started to really dig in in 2013. So by most people's standards, pretty early. And it was through alternative schools of economic thought. Um, didn't think Bitcoin had any applicability to mainstream finance. But I was still at Morgan Stanley working, you know, in the, in the belly of the beast of the mainstream financial system until 2016. And then I realized I had to be full time. I was I was orange pilled and started to see how this distributed ledger technology, not necessarily Bitcoin, was going to have a big impact on the way the mainstream financial system worked. And also that these two financial systems needed to be able to coexist. There needed to be bridges between the two that where where the way that the that the bridges worked didn't harm the other system either or exactly um so so um very quietly i donated appreciated bitcoin in 2017 to fund an endowment for female engineers at my undergraduate alma mater in my dad's memory he was an engineering professor um, and I started out in engineering and I'm a failed engineer i didn't stay and finish um and i thought why don't I try to help solve the problem of women in the STEM field with, with appreciated Bitcoin? And I ran smack dab into Wyoming not having had a, um, a, a money transmitter law that allowed the Bitcoin companies to stay. So I didn't even realize that Coinbase had left Wyoming in 2015 because the man, money transmitter law basically said you've got to hold dollar for dollar reserves in addition to the value of the Bitcoin that you're, that you're transmitting on behalf of customers. Well, that makes no, no economic sense. So they left. Coinbase and Circle left. So uh, when I learned in 2017 that that was the case, keep in mind, I had been on the UW Foundation board. I had also been a college it, Wyoming legislative intern. And so I said, guys, you don't want to miss this Bitcoin thing. Um, I will volunteer to roll up sleeves and help you fix this. Because Wyoming was one of the three states that had bad money transmitter statutes. So long story short, um, I came out to Wyoming to try to have, help fix it uh, through a college friend, met another 
uh, a local accountant here. Um, and the three of us kind of just locked arms and just grassrooted the whole thing, gathered a whole bunch of people that we knew, networked to individuals who were influencers within the state and said, yeah, let's try to fix this money transmitter law. And when it got fixed, it got that one passed unanimously in both, um, both houses. Uh, and, and that was great. And there were, it's funny because back in, this was 2018. So it was, it would have been January, 2018. We put out a call to the industry to come to Cheyenne and talk to legislators, help educate. Okay. So we had a lot of people come up from Denver. We had people who flew in. There was one guy who flew in from Asia and we had a 16 year old from Newcastle who had their Bitcoin, um, caught up in the Coinbase situation because they couldn't get it out. They, they didn't get the, the message from Coinbase that they had to get it out before Coinbase stopped serving Wyoming customers. And so there's, their Bitcoin was stuck. Okay, so you actually had this wide range of, of people. And there was a Latina grandmother from Cheyenne whose granddaughter drove her to the event and she was mining Bitcoin at home, okay? So it, this was not the normal crowd was the point. And I, there were two things I remember from that, that little educational gathering. One of the most powerful legislators said, I have never seen people coming up from Denver. It's usually our students going to, going to the big city. That struck him. And then another woman, um, Senator T Tara Nethercott, who turned out to be one of the most influential legislators in this area in Wyoming, said, I can't believe how young the faces were and how I didn't see the normal crowd here. She understood there was something different about and special about how early this uh, this this initiative in Wyoming was. And so then I mentioned Tyler Lindholm earlier. He was the legislator who ran all the bills on the floor. Super talented. Uh, and and he's the guy who got the Wyoming Food Freedom Act done as well. Uh, he He came back to me after we got the first one done and said, what else can we do? What else can we do? And then he ended up surprising me with a bill to prevent taxation of Bitcoin. Um, and he just did that to kind of see the look on my face. Like we were all having fun because this was all just a pure grassroots volunteer thing in 2018. And in that year, five different laws got passed through the Wyoming legislature. And, but again, like we just sat there and, and called out legislators and said, can we talk to you about this? And it was, it, there were so many people who showed up. I'm so grateful. I, Back then, I feel like I got way too much credit because this was a grassroots thing. I understand why in the media world, people want to have a face associated with things. And because I was out there doing the podcast, it, it turned out to be me. But I cannot spread the credit for this across enough people. There were dozens who made this happen. This wasn't one person by any stretch. And so now we're, we're up to, what, 33 bills, I think, that have passed the Wyoming legislature in six different legislative sessions to basically recognize this technology, create a, a regulatory guardrail for it. If this had been taken nationally, that what the Wyoming regime for digital assets, FTX would not have happened. Okay, the reason why Sam Bankman-Fried was able to scam everybody was because he was able to skirt around and, and walk right into a regulatory vacuum. And Wyoming was trying to make all of that regulatory, a property rights respecting regulatory regime go mainstream. Yeah. And it didn't happen fast enough. And he's vegan. So what are you going to do? There you go. 
Well, allegedly, do? right? Apparently, allegedly. Now there's all these rumors that he was actually not a vegan at all. So, Well, my respect for him goes up a little in that case. <laughs> but no, I actually, I kind of want to, I feel like we've been doing like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with time travel the last like little bit here. But I kind of yeah. want to go a little bit further back because most of my knowledge, granted very little, um, I know more about the sort of standard banking system. I sort of want to talk about a little bit about that and why what you're doing now is super important because of the pitfalls in our current system. And like back in the 30s, obviously, Great Depression had that huge stock market crash in 29, I believe. And then I believe it was the FDIC came out in 1933. Correct. And so that was like the safety net, right? The FDIC. Yep. And so recently, we've sort of had like the Silicon Valley Bank and like a couple other banks have all these issues that you would think would not happen. But I'd like to sort of talk about maybe the difference between the issues that were going on when the stock market crashed like back then compared to the, the bank issues now. Um, because there's, there's sort of like this idea, or I mean, I sort of want to talk about like, sorry, I have notes here. I have notes here. Yeah. Fractional reserve banking. Yeah. And sort of the issues with that. Yeah. Because it's like your money isn't your money because your money's not all in the bank. Correct. Sort of idea. And so... I'd, I'd sort of love to talk about some of the pitfalls in that, but I sort of want to do some of that history lesson back in the 30s to now and sort of like all these problems that have been sort of been building up since the 30s yeah. Um, and sort of how we got to where we are now and why Bitcoin is even more important, I think, than ever before. Yeah, well, let me go back to the founding of the U.S. Uh, states were the chartering authorities for banks. Banks, of course, have been around since human existence. Uh, And in the U.S. case, the states were the chartering authorities until 1863 when the National Bank Act was passed and they created a federal chartering authority. But the deal that got cut back in Lincoln's time was that the federal chartering authority and state, the 50 state chartering authorities were equal. There weren't 50 states back then, but but that was the deal that was cut between the the federal government and the states. And that that deal has been in place and has been respected by Washington up until about 10 years ago. Um, so, so fast forward from 1863 when you created this what's called dual banking system between the feds and the states. Um, then the Federal Reserve gets created in 1913. Uh, a lot of folks would say things started going haywire then, and they're not wrong. Um, and then the D- Great Depression occurs arguably because of Federal Reserve policy in the roaring 20s. Um, but they were dealing with the after effects of, um, of World War One. A lot of people don't know, by the way, there was a, a Great Depression of 1920 that lasted nine months. It was as deep as the Great Depression of, of after that started with the stock market crash in 1929. Why did that one last seven, eight years? Because the government got in and tried to do something about it. Why did the one in 1920 last nine months and nobody talks about it? Because literally markets were left to do their own correcting. And um, it was it was the lack of government intervention that allowed it, uh, unemployment and GDP to return to the pre-depression levels in nine months. Okay. So uh, not enough people know about the history of that. It's an incredible piece of history that tells you if markets are left to work, they work pretty quickly. It's brutal, but they work pretty quickly. Whereas it was the attempt to counteract the the Great Depression that caused it to last seven or eight years. Okay, so then, as you said, the FDIC got created in 1933 as the insurance company. Okay, so three important dates. 1863, National Bank Act. 1913, 
Federal Reserve gets created, 1933 FDIC gets created. Then we have this, this relative stasis um, in the banking industry all the way up until about t- 10 years ago. I mean, we certainly had booms and busts, okay? And, and that was monetary policy related. We can talk about that um, in a separate thread. But you asked about the banking system. Okay, about 10 years ago, the banking, re- bank regulators in Washington, D.C. started to do something they'd never done before which is starting to pressure the banking industry not to service certain industries that they didn't like. It started with the payday lenders, okay? And, you know, the payday lenders may or may not have been ethical, okay? But they were lawful. And then it went to, you know, adult entertainment and firearms manufacturing and gaming and all the sort of sin industries, if you will. Uh, And it, it hit 30 different industries before Congress got wind of it and said, cut it out. You have not you don't have the power as a federal bank regulator to tell a bank which industries it can't serve and stop politicizing the banking industry. You are an unelected official and the power that was granted to you to regulate the banks had something to do with whether the banks were solvent and people could actually get their money back, not whether the bank was being used to socially engineer things you do or do not like, right? So it stopped under the Trump administration and unfortunately it started again. Um, and it started, unfortunately, this time in the operation, Cho- it's called Operation Choke Point. That's, that Operation Choke Point started in 2013, stopped in 2017, it's back. Uh, and it started with, our, with, um, with the crypto companies, digital asset companies this time, and it's now moving to financial technology companies. So back to your question, what's wrong with fractional reserve banking? What's wrong with the banking system? If you think about the post-depression movie, It's a Wonderful Life, um, the whole concept of where's your money when all the depositors come to the bank? Well, it's in, it's in his house and it's in his business and it's her, it's in her house. Um, all of that is true. So, so fundamentally the banking traditional banking model is built on a grand confidence game. It's built on the assumption that not everybody will come and withdraw their deposits at the same time. And that has enabled the banks to do what's called borrowing short and lending long. Borrow short-term, lend long-term. They're doing what's called maturity transformation. And when they do that, um, it's fundamentally unstable. Now, if we were starting to create a financial system from scratch, we would create something far more stable than what I just described. Because you can see periodically that when a panic occurs in a fundamentally unstable system, there are bank runs and people lose money. There's a sort of proverbial sort of Damocles hanging over every bank, always. This is not new. This has been the case since the 1930s. And yet, I think a lot of folks woke up with Silicon Valley Bank and understood, wait a minute, my deposits in the bank are not guaranteed? And who's, what's the real counterparty credit risk in my bank? Um, and is my bank even solvent? Wait a minute, I didn't even think I had to do that analysis. In my experience, having worked with corporate treasurers in my Wall Street experience, for them, $250,000 of FDIC insurance is nothing. So they had whole teams of people doing counterparty credit risk analysis on their banks. Because a corporate treasurer, think about the worst case scenario for a corporate treasurer, it's their bank defaults on their corporate cash. It's the first thing that a, that a corporate treasurer would lose their job over. So of course they had teams of people, These large, the largest corporations in the world, have teams of people who do nothing but analyze the counterparty credit risk of their banks. However, the vast majority of the rest of us didn't even think about it. 
and 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 didn't fully understand it, didn't fully grasp that a bank deposit is fundamentally an IOU to a leveraged counterparty. Yeah, I think, and at least what I saw from that was just even further consolidation, centralization of of the banking industry. Everyone yeah. moving their accounts to Chase, but you know the unfortunately, yeah, it's yeah. going from small banks to big banks, and that is sad. Yeah, but the whole FDIC thing. I mean, in general, like how how real is even the FDIC insurance policy? Like, and well, what? What have you experienced as, you know, obviously getting into your specific situation with, with Custodia, why, you know, that was barring you from getting this master account? I yeah. Believe, right? Well, Custodia did apply for FDIC insurance and was rebuffed. We knew all along that that was likely to be the case because the FDIC was pretty anti the technology innovation. And it's more than just crypto. I would actually say that the federal bank regulators in Washington, D.C., have been afraid of technology that speeds up the settlement of transactions across the board. It's not just crypto. It's also just API-based, you know, modern online banking, right? Because that speeds up the ability for people to withdraw their money. Think about the It's a Wonderful Life scene. Everybody had to go down to the bank and wait in line, okay, and fill out a form with, with handwriting. Whereas now it's a click of your phone um, online banking speeds up. Not it takes to, like a couple of weeks to settle. They got more time to figure out, correct. And shuffle around. It, and, but fundamentally, I, I retweeted somebody today who said, listen, the banking systems, the IT systems of the traditional banks are built for an analog world. And that is 100% right. Okay. And so at first, it's interesting because when um, in Jan, uh, uh, January 3rd of this year, the three federal banking agencies, the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC, the federal chartering authority, put out a joint statement saying crypto is basically banned in all but but substance, in all but saying that. They said it's risky, okay? But that's that's saying it's risky is, is code to a bank that you're going to have regulators up the wazoo if you bother to touch this industry, okay? This is how the Operation Choke Point 1.0 occurred. It's risky, to service a firearms dealer or risky to service an, a, a payday lender, okay? It's, that's code for you can't do it. Um, and so what they did in January was put out a statement that said that banks have to be aware of the risks of using open permissionless and or decent, open decentralized and or permissionless networks. And I read that and I thought, because I've worked with it, the folks here they're smart people, but they don't understand the technology, okay? And, I, and when I read that, I thought, that's just lawyers who don't understand the technology making a mistake. Open public and or open decentralized and or permissionless networks. The internet is an open public and or decentralized network. So were they telling, I, at, the thought, I, at the time I thought they just made a mistake, but I, it, it, because what they meant was open decentralized and or permissionless blockchains. I thought that's what they meant. But now I'm not so sure. After Silicon Valley Bank, you look back at it and look at that January 3rd statement again and realize they're basically telling the banks, don't use the internet. Don't use online banking. Okay, so what they, I think, are pushing, and by the way, they've kind of pushed out some of the most tech-forward banks and had 
the few that that have survived are now under incredible pre- pressure and under consent orders for this, that, and the other thing right there. The regulators are basically saying to the banks, don't be tech forward. So think about the implications of that. They're trying to push everybody back to an analog world. Have you guys ever set foot in a bank branch? Have you ever written a paper check? Okay, this is where they're trying to push everybody back to the analog world because that's how the systems are built. They're not able to take the internet speed where, where a transaction can settle as fast as the speed of light, pretty darn close to it in reality. Okay, so wow, their old systems are horse and buggy and there are transactions settling with a Ferrari engine, but you got to marry those two. Okay, that's where I spend a lot of time thinking hard about making sure that the fast settling technologies didn't cause bank runs. And I was, if you go back to 2020, I started warning the bank regulators publicly that stable coins, because they settle so fast, if a bank is going to hold reserves for a stable coin, that bank is more susceptible to bank runs. And unfortunately, we saw that. Now, that stable coins were not what actually triggered the, the failure of the, of the banks that failed in March of this year, in April, actually. Um, but it wasn't that far off. It was the speed of technology and the speed of information traveling of everyone saying, oh my gosh, my bank might not be solvent. Um, And how fast they were able through online banking to direct the withdrawal of their entire account balance. Now, the settlement of those transactions is still on that old horse and buggy back end, but the user experience looks Ferrari front end to the user. And so... We got problems fundamentally in this banking industry, right? And the bank regulators are reacting by putting their head in the sand. Federal bank regulators, not the state regulators. My experience is the state regulators are much more open to all of this and very thoughtful, much more thoughtful than the federal regulators. Federal regulators, you know, thumb their nose at the state regulators and think the state regulators are a bunch of hillbilly idiots. Um, however, uh, in my experience, it's, it's actually been the opposite. The, the federal regulators are the arrogant ones who have not spent the time to learn the technology. And they don't understand that by doing what they're doing, which is shoving all of the new technologies into the corner, or they're shoving them into the shadows and, and offshore. They're, as a result, they're going to be playing whack-a-mole. And it will have been their fault. They made a mistake in not saying how do we figure out how to make this technology integrate well with the traditional system? And they didn't work with the friendlies. Custodia was a friendly. They didn't work with the friendlies who were... Is that a what? That was? Well, it's <laughs> their kidding. choice. Look what, look what they did, yeah. right? The, they denied us, disparaged us. Um, it's their choice. They were the ones who, who, who created the fight. Custodia did not seek a fight at all and went to extraordinarily extraordinary lengths to avoid it. Yeah. So I want to get to custodia, but like if there is a bank that wants to do it like a better way, like, is there even a path forward? Like say like an average regional bank, like maybe not lending out, you know, $10 for every $1 they carry a better reserve and try and update systems yeah. or, but then they might not get back by FDIC or. Well, you know, what, it's interesting. The there's path? a, there's a big incumbent bias in Washington, DC. And I, and I must say there are some banks that are far better than others among the traditional banks. You don't ever see me say black and white, you know, all banksters are bad kind of thing. Like some of the, some of the folks in this 
digital asset industry will say, I don't do that because it's not true. Um, I just got an award. There were 20 innovators of the year in the traditional banking industry nominated by the American banker, which is the traditional paper of record in the traditional banking industry. So clearly they're, they're looking for innovators. And there were some incredible people at this conference doing incredible things. And it, it was so much fun for me to be there because all of the politics of the fight were not even part of the tape, you know, part of the discussion. Everybody who was there was interested in doing things in a better way and, and making the customer experience better and making the bank more compliant through better use of technology. These are, these are all wonderful things. And the people who were awarded alongside me really, truly are innovators and are interested in this. So you won't see me criticizing them. So yes, there are absolute, absolutely traditional banks. It tends to be the smaller ones. So now it's funny how this whole conversation started with the whole city rural thing, urban rural distinction. There is an urban rural distinction in the banking world too. The large New York banks do not understand what makes a small community bank tick. The small community bankers have challenges with the technology that they have to keep up with because they don't have full you know, developers on staff, right? And so finding somebody who can actually bridge those two things, which is what Custodia sought out to do, um, was, was, you know, that's something that should be embraced. And I will tell you, it's amazing how many traditional bankers have told me behind the scenes, we're rooting for you. And oh my gosh, you know, I wish I could stand up to the regulators the way you're standing up to the feds. And um, yeah, um, I, so I'm, I'm not alone. This is not a black and white kind of, Thing. And, and, and the, I, I got to stop here and thank the board of Custodia, the shareholders of Custodia, and the team at Custodia, who has just weathered some pretty heavy punches that the Fed threw at us. Um, and I, at the time, I, I used the phrase, the Fed shot the, sta- the scallion, to, stallion to scatter the herd. And uh, what's funny is they only wounded the stallion. And we're back. <laughs> and they didn't kill us. And now that stallion's pretty mad. That's awesome. Well, congratulations, by the way, on that award, I think. Thank yeah, you. Obviously, very well justified. But that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And, and I've transferred to, you know, credit union and things like that. But, you know, then you hear, you know, like Janet Yellen and talking about who's going to be bailed out and who's not. And yeah, I think people are, are more apprehensive about. But I think the people in the small towns of like Wyoming, you know, they're always going to be in like a small local bank. So I guess, what is that discrepancy? Is there a concern with the smaller banks? And uh, yeah, is that something people just need to trust like more so? Well, this is the sad part. Watch what the regulators do, not what they say. Okay, the the party in control in Washington, D.C. rails against large businesses, but look what's actually happened. The large banks got special deals and they got special deals to get even bigger. And bigger and bigger. -er -er, Okay. So I feel for the community banks and, and somebody who's trying to help bring them this new technology that's going to help them be able to compete with the the largest players. Um, So look at the traditional banking system as a whole, that whole business model of taking in a deposit and turning around and making a long-term loan against it. When all those depositors show up and want their deposits back, those banks are not solvent fundamentally. Um, so I just saw today there was a very thoughtful macro analyst, Mike Shedlock, Mish, came out with a proposal for how to restructure the banking system to make it stable. 
And, you know, he's got some good ideas. It's basically, as I said before, if we were going to create a banking industry, it wouldn't look like what it does today if we were starting it from scratch. What would you do? You would have the long-term pools of capital, like pension funds. Those would be the ones who make the long-term loans. And you would match fund the duration. The duration is the, is the, is the in plain English, it's the midpoint of the expected cash flows of your investment. Okay, so a mortgage is going to have a, 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 you know, a 10-year mortgage is, is, is give or take going to have a duration of four years. It's the midpoint of the expected cash flows. Okay, um, so, so, so a pension fund easily would invest on a four-year term. In fact, they're looking for longer term stuff than, than that. I, most of my career, I was working with life insurance companies and pension funds, which are the longest of the long-term investors in capital markets. Um, right, so they would be the long-term investors, the long-term lenders, if they could be. But that's not the way that that the system works. Instead, what we do is we tell them, no, they have to go back. They have to go invest in stocks. They don't try to asset liability match their cash flows. That's the way the pension um, regulatory structure works. It's called ERISA. The incentive for them is to invest in stocks and roll the dice. Whereas the banks, the incentive is also to roll the dice in a different way, which is to take this borrow short long-term maturity transformation risk, which inherently means there's a sort of Damocles hanging right over them. And if there's ever a rumor that they're insolvent, then all of a sudden, thanks to online banking, their deposits can disappear much faster than anyone anticipated. Except for folks like me who were warning, if a bank's dealing in, in digital assets, they darn well better hold nothing but cash. Um, and in fact, you know, unfortunately, some hard lessons had to be learned because that wasn't heated. I guess I guess my question would be sort of like with just with with so much like going on like in the legislature and just like public reception. I think I think obviously it's it's kind of gained more positive since 2020 of the last couple of years because of just everything that's gone on and even in the last several months because of the bank run stuff. Um, but like, where do you see all of this stuff going? Like the next like couple of years, five years, ten years. Like, what's the future look like? I mean, there's that talk about like Great CBDC and all this stuff, but like, yeah. where are we going? Well, there is a, a a very important school of thought that what happened to Custodia because Custodia had a patent, has a patent on tokenized bank deposits, um, and we were the the one that got the closest, and we're the one that was the most respectful of the existing legal and regulatory structure of the banking industry that that's the reason why the Fed went after us first. And at the time, we, we had evidence that there was a coordinated effort to get multiple applicants at the federal bank charter level to withdraw their applications at the same time. We have that in email. So we knew that this whole concept of, of Operation Choke Point 2.0 was real. There was coordinated effort among federal banking agencies that were supposedly looking at each applicant individually and had due process obligations to each applicant, right? But no, behind the scenes, that that, that went out the window, right? Um, so unfortunately, there's, you know, federal banking agencies, the government used to be there to serve the people, and instead they think we're there to serve them, it does seem. Um, but so, so um, what has happened subsequently in the next few months is that it became crystal clear there's an all-of-government approach to try to shove the entire crypto industry offshore. And they literally, from what I can see, the peop the policy people, these are not the people on the ground at the Fed. The people on the ground at the Fed were very open to the discussion. We had a lot, months of work with them in the 
Um, it's now public information because they disclosed it. They disclosed an incredible amount of information they normally wouldn't disclose about an applicant. The, the denial um, order on Custodia is 41 times the longest ever Fed denial. Okay, so they disclose all kinds of public inf- non-public information that normally isn't disclosed. Um, but, you know, so you can discern that we did a lot of work. There was an incredible amount of work. Um, and uh, it was not, from what I can tell the people on the ground, it was the higher-ups in Washington, D.C., going all the way up to the White House. And again, we have evidence of, of this. Some of this will come out um, later, that there was coordination, uh, and it was part of this all-of-government approach. So now what? To, back to your question, where's this going to go? Um, the, you asked about the CBDC. I actually think there's a decent chance that that, at first, it, it, when people said, did you get shot because the because of a CBDC? And I was scratching my head saying, I don't have evidence of that. I mean, is it possible? Yes, I suppose. I mean, I know some of the people in senior positions of power in the Biden administration are very pro CBDC, but why would the Fed go along with that? It didn't, I didn't have evidence of it, but what has happened in this all of government approach that I just talked about, boy, they're really going after everybody who might be basically they're clear in the runway for themselves. Right. So, but this is part of the reason why it's so important that Custodia is fighting because if that's the case, Keep in mind, I mentioned that Custodia has a patent. And one of the interesting things, it was granted in July, by the way, of last year. So it's coming up on the one-year anniversary. Um, one of the interesting questions about the structure of the Federal Reserve, as you guys probably know, is that it's owned by its members. Okay? It's owned by the banks. Why was the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank on the board of the San Francisco Fed, which was its regulator? Okay, that, that was a question that a lot of people were asking. Okay, now um, the importance of that in the context of custodia owning, having been granted the patent, is that those are private entities. The 12 Federal Reserve Banks are corporations. They're technically nonprofit corporations owned by their member banks. Okay, so do they have to comply with a private company's patent? I'm asking the question rhetorically. And so this is why people came to us early on and they said, it's because of the fact that you were going to issue a digital dollar and you had the patent that they had to try to shove you to the side. Well, you know, if that's true, eventually that'll become pretty, pretty clear. I don't know if it's true. I don't have evidence of it. But to the point of your question, how's this going to go? Look, I think of the Biden administration, if Biden gets reelected, he's going to do it. That's my guess. Look at who's in charge of the National Economic Council. It's someone who has publicly supported a central bank digital currency. I think it's interesting, especially, you know, saying how um, outdated all the banking is. And then it's like, <laughs> we just go right to CBDC. It's kind of, it's kind of wild. Well, you, you're getting at why, I mean, I laugh at, at all this, right? Because, you know, it, I, there was just a podcast last week at the American Bankers or American Bar Association Business mm-hmm. Council about the the innovation guardrails in the banking industry, and they had somebody at the Fed. Well, guess who? Uh, guess who, what the background of the person who gave the presentation was? Take a wild guess. What would you guess the background of the person who was telling the world what the innovation guidelines at the Fed are? I don't know, something in... A lawyer. Yeah. Okay. Remember Hardcore regulation. 
Yeah. I mean, it was crystal clear this person didn't understand the technology. Okay. Do you really want lawyers writing technology policy? So, I mean, but that's kind of the point, right? Like if, if there's, part of me looks at that and thinks, I don't think there's any chance that a CBDC is going to get rolled out in the short term because there's, again, too just much of a gap. institutionally, there's a huge gap. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I want to be cognizant of your time here too. Last question is, you know, Bitcoin, obviously, most Bitcoiners think that it's like all or nothing. And obviously, um, you're kind of in the world of coexisting. And I'm, yeah. I'm curious, just, yeah, how do you see that coexist, um, you know, these worlds coexisting in general? And is that, a, you're saying that's a good thing? You know, how do we increase adoption of Bitcoin with this threatening, you know, oversight of of the government and you know all this uncertainty and how do you yeah how do you sell this to to bitcoiners who are kind of like all or nothing well um people find bitcoin when it's the right time in their lives for people to find bitcoin um and so part of what i was alluding to earlier with this whole idea of shoving crypto offshore and where where literally the people in charge at the very top have this mindset that it's all a ponzi scheme and it's going to zero and Let's pop the bubble and make it go to zero. When it doesn't go to zero, which it has not and will not, in my opinion, um, then they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that what they did actually caused their problems to get a lot bigger because now they're playing whack-a-mole. So I think eventually they're, they're going to have to come to the table. And those of us who are fighting um, are, you know, we're here. Um, we're not giving up and won't give up. Uh, and, and, uh, what they're doing is unlawful in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, we'll, we're playing, playing it out. So, um, but the point is, in, the more that they try to ban something, the irony is that most people will be more interested in learning about why it is that the powers that be want to ban this, right? And boy, there's a, I, I, I had a really interesting conversation with somebody who was a very experienced, very successful respected investor who I've known for years. And he said, you know, I don't have a sense where the U.S. is going. Um, I don't have a sense where markets are going. Usually you can kind of tell the direction. You know, there's incredible upheaval and incredible uncertainty right now. I have no idea who's going to be the next president of the United States. I, I have no idea who, who the nominee, nominees of either party is going to be, okay? I had, I mean, it was not in my bingo card that RFK Jr. was going to come up and, you know, with an anti-war, pro-Bitcoin, pro-free speech message. Anti-vax, yeah. Wow. But but look at what has happened in the polls and look at some of these really interesting mainstream Democrats who who have come up, you know, and by the way, I'm seeing that on the Republican side as well. Um, Folks who used to support Trump who are looking for an alternative and you know, it is a fact that Trump has been indicted, um, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think it was politically motivated. A majority of Americans, according to a Harvard poll I saw today, do think it's politi- politically motivated. And, you know, uh, off uh, non-Americans must be looking at what's going on in the U.S. right now and thinking, are you kidding me? This is supposedly the leader of the world? It's nuts. Um, it's just nuts. So, I, but, but the point is, I have no idea. None of us knows what's going to happen in the next 18 months. None of us, except there's one thing I do know. There's a Bitcoin happening happening. 
And every 10 minutes. And every, yeah, I mean, every 10 minutes, Bitcoin's going to keep appending a block and there's a Bitcoin happening happening. Um, and, you know, it's going to be an interesting time because if there's a Bitcoin bull market, which passed is, if passed is prologue and there are fundamental reasons to believe it will be, then, you know, we're going to be in a big Bitcoin rally right into the U.S. presidential election. That's going to be interesting. And will the Biden administration have started to realize that that turning off the Gen Z and millennial vote is not in their interest and that the octogenarians who have decided that that's a good idea um, might not be appealing to the millennials and Gen Zs anymore? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's fascinating. But but fundamentally, you don't think the dollar has to like go to zero for Bitcoin no. to succeed, right? No, and I don't want to live in that world. That's... I really don't. This is a hyper Bitcoinization scenario yes. that if the dollar, let's have the dollar collapse tomorrow. I don't want to live in that world. I don't think, I don't think any of us wants to live in that world. And because then we are, you know, foraging, <laughs> like um, then the hunting skills that we have, you know, the city folk might, uh, might, might wish they had, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it's a, tw- I think it's at least a 20 year transition. Yeah. And, and I, and one of the OG Bitcoiners that um, kind of, you know, dropped off the, the, the public um, fa- facing side of the Bitcoin world. I had a conversation with him recently and he said, you know, we're about, it's happening about as fast as I expected that it would. He didn't think it was going to happen overnight either. And so I, I consider myself a, a long-term maxi, but I'm not a toxic maxi in the sense that I do believe Bitcoin's going to win out, but it has to win out against all of its adversaries. And, and the process of winning out against the adversaries strengthens it. So I welcome all of the attacks on it because so far nothing has been able to really land a blow. And nor, the U.S. government, you know, trying to shove all the service providers offshore, that's not going to stop Bitcoin either. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, I totally agree. Talk a lot about having a positive outlook. I think we want these things to happen slow and kind of more naturally because, yeah, hyper Bitcoinization or just the whole world imploding. Like, no, yeah, no one wants to live in that scenario. And, you know, hey, what are we all about here? People is low time preference. Like, you know, we want these yep. things to kind of evolve well, the as they though. should. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but this is no, important yeah. because, because the counter argument is worth understanding it's that we are live we are destroying our capital base every day that malinvestment is allowed to continue so i respect and understand that those who say just stop and you know literally not have any um and any more intervention and and you know like we talked about the depression of 1920 that nobody talks about because it was only nine months old nine months in duration mark let markets you know um, self-correct. self-correct. I, re- I understand that view. And so that's why I wanted to give a heed, uh, you know, give a head nod to, yeah, if you were, th- if you were looking back in history and uh, with the benefit of hindsight at today, you would say they should just let it all burn. However, people who have to live through that, it, it's not fun. It was not fun living through the depression of 1920. And a lot of people lost their businesses. A lot of people lost their homes. A lot of people lost their livelihoods. And that's not fun. And so we can look back at it and say, oh, yeah, great. Markets were left to self-correct. If you're living through it, 
and you have to live through the social breakdown of that kind of environment, you don't, you don't wish that on even your worst enemies. So that's why I, I'm with Safety, and I think what, that this, and this, this system that we know is unstable mm-hmm. will more likely die with a whimper than a bang as people just vote with their feet to the better system. But the, here's the great irony. Because the U.S. federal regulators are so afraid of crypto, they're making decisions out of fear. Organizations that tend to make that make decisions out of fear tend to get what they feared. Okay, so all they're doing by trying to push us back to an analog world in the banking space, you know, folks like you are probably not going to start lining up at a bank branch and filling out a withdrawal slip in handwriting. Okay, you're not going to go back to the bad user experience. Once you've known the good user experience of how fast money can move around the world, and you're going to just migrate with your feet that way. It's the same reason why the taxi and limousine commissions in the big cities were not able to stop Uber. The experience was so much better for the ultimate users, and they voted with their feet. And that's going to happen here with, with, um, with digital assets, in particular Bitcoin and Lightning Network, I think. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about the power of the consumer, a lot from the food perspective, but I think that that resonates here as well. So thank you so thank much, you. Caitlin. Boy, we, had, and, we talked about a lot. Yeah. No, this is fun. I really appreciate your perspective in the space too. I think it's refreshing and it's it's important to have the open-mindedness of yeah, considering the alternative and coexisting of things. And uh, obviously all the work you're doing with uh, you know the banking side is is so important. So Thank you so much. Thank you. It's nice to meet you in person. We've interacted on Twitter. It's nice to see other Bitcoiners that moved to Wyoming and are building fun and interesting things. It is. And it's, it's a wonderful place. But, uh, as you know, as the old, uh, as the old uh, bumper sticker says, you know, stay stay away. Wyoming is full. It's there fake, are... <laughs> actually. It doesn't even exist. Just... Right, 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 right. Yeah, the, the, the old cartoon, Gar- Garfield cartoon. Wyoming. What was it? I forgot that the cartoon was... Um, Yes, it's an Italian word for no state here. That's right? amazing. Well, thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. And thank you, everyone. So for nice in. to see you guys in person. Thanks yeah. for coming to Cheyenne. Thanks. Of course.